this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. The past several days have brought new attention to the way financial institutions communicate the health of their balance sheets and the way that investors and depositors react. In this episode of the podcast, we speak with Pingyang Gao, Area Head of Accounting and Law and Professor at Hong Kong University. Before joining HKU in 2020, Dr. Gao had been on the faculty of the Chicago Booth School of Business since 2008 and prior to that was at Yale, where his research focused on public policy and securities regulation issues with a special emphasis on the correlation of bank runs and disclosures. Some of your research talks about, the, so if I understand it correctly, the intersection of, of, of bank run panics, the way management discloses them, which you just discussed, and, and how the, you know, whether it's regulators or creditors react, I mean, so you, are you saying that some of what you've done in the research is being, you know, that that's what you're seeing in this particular instance? And and more to the point, and I wanted to get, hopefully I'll phrase this the right way, is, are, is your argument that there should be less disclosure or uh, yeah. the disclosure timing doesn't make sense? Maybe you could go a little bit into that. Yeah, so uh, I published a paper uh, in, I think, 2019 at Journal of Accounting Economics on this bank run uh, issue in the context of uh, uh, banks' disclosure. Now, uh, the main point of that paper is that when when a company in general and a, a bank in particular faces this possibility of uh, a bank run phenomenon, then the disclosure of the information should be, uh, is tricky. Mm. The more an organization is vulnerable to this kind of run phenomenon, uh, the more discretion we should give those institutions uh, in reporting their results. And the reason is is that, as as I mentioned earlier, the academic interest uh, focuses the the diamond dific model was interest uh, was interesting to many people because of that panic run. Hmm. That is, the bank's fundamental is reasonable, um, and if everyone could be optimistic about its future then the bank could survive. But at the same time, if uh, the majority of the people are pessimistic about the organization, then the bank could, uh, could, could actually go under. So in that kind of situation, now, if we can, if we can pull those banks together with those banks whose fundamentals are really strong, hmm. then investors or outsiders or, or, or depositors, they cannot tell whether it's the really good bank or it's the, 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 uh, the medium good bank. And in that situation, they will take an average and they will not run on all those banks. But if you separate them out, 
then the really good bank are, banks are going to be safe. But those marginally good banks that could actually survive and could actually generate positive MPV for the society could be shut down by the panic-based run. So, uh, so that goes back to uh, um, a lot of uh, disclosure regulation and right. banking regulation issues that given that we know the bank's main function is to transform liquidity. That is, the depositors uh, put their money in the bank uh, and they want to withdraw the money anytime. So they demand liquidity anytime. But at the same time, the economy needs long-term funding. Uh, we want to, the, the entrepreneurs uh, want to borrow money for a longer period of time. They don't want to borrow money that could be called back anytime. And so the, the bank plays this fundamental role in liquidity transformation. And now, as a result of this critical role for banks, it's inevitable that the assets of the bank cannot be as liquid as the deposits. Mm -hmm. You cannot put all your money in short-term treasury notes. And so in that situation, given that we know that the bank has to have some illiquid assets, then to what extent we want to force them to give us estimation or measurement of those illiquid assets. And so uh, uh, my research with uh, uh, Jiang Shi from Duke, uh, we argue that we want to we don't want to force the, the banks with illiquid assets to report too much of their illiquid positions. Now, that solution mitigates the panic-based run. That, right. that is, those runs that are not justified by the fundamental. But giving them too much discretion does have a cost. Right, right. And the cost is, is that well, what if the bank is actually really bad so that the fundamental justifies a run, that the fundamental justifies the, the closing down of the bank? And so if we don't require them to disclose uh, uh, a lot, then we could commit this, uh, what do we call the undue optimism error or the type two errors that into statistical language. That is, we, we might let some of the banks with really bad fundamentals uh, not disciplined by the market, by the run. So the solution we give is that, well, we should try to find some kind of lower bond below which we would require the companies to disclose. Mm -hmm. But as long as they are not too bad, then we don't want the outsiders to be able to see the bank's um, financial conditions uh, uh, very accurately. So I, I guess the question would be, um, does that, you know, does that give management too much discretion? I mean, it would seem that management would have the ability and, and the incentive um, to say 
that these, um, uh, if there's an impairment, that um, it's it's doesn't meet the threshold. We can not we don't have to disclose it. And then um, when it gets to the point where it's ir, you know, it, it can't be fixed. Um, that it makes the situation even worse. Do you understand where I'm yeah. coming from? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, the apparently the management uh, and many stakeholders in a bank or in a firm have their private incentives. They they have their incentives that are not necessarily aligned with the best interest of all stakeholders uh, together. So now the manager might lose the job um, uh, if the performance is not good for the for the quarter, and the, the manager has all the incentive right. to, uh, to to camouflage uh, the, the, uh, to uh, this uh, bad performance. So that's where I I think that's where regulators come in. Hmm. Now. There is an issue about information that exists within the firm and potentially could be utilized by some party versus the information that is disclosed to the the, the outsiders. Right. The, the, these two sets of information uh, do not co- are not identical in practice, and they should not be identical uh, in, in practice. So in this context, I would say the regulators have access to a lot more information than outsiders. Hmm. And the the regulators are not subject to this bank run phenomena or bank run incentive. So the the bank run incentive, as I explained earlier, is that when the bank is is reasonably strong, but not that strong enough to withhold, uh, to withstand uh, any kind of withdrawal mm-hmm. by depositors, for an individual depositor, whether it's optimal to withdraw or not, depends not only on the the so-called fundamental, but also or on other people's action or or on her expectation of other people's um, yeah. actions. So a case to the point is that you know, um, I've noticed that um, um, many uh, uh, um, during the, the Silicon Valley Bank uh, episode, some of the uh, venture capitalist advisors send out emails uh, to urge their member uh, firms to withdraw the money from the bank as soon as possible. Right now, uh, apparently, you can argue that because many of those advisors are doing this, eventually they are shooting their own feet. Yes, uh, but the problem is that now some uh, other. Advisors were arguing that, oh no, for the goodness of the entire industry, let's refrain refrain from this panic-based run. But I would say that those advisors who did not take prompt action to 
uh, encourage their members to withdraw money, those advisors actually are or were violating their fiduciary duty. Yeah, I, I because, think I've seen some discussion about that already. Yeah, because apparently you, as an advisor, you should work for the best interest of your member firms. Now, 20, uh, 40 hours later, your member um, companies are stuck in a terrible situation. Mm-hmm. And so it would have been better had you advised them to withdraw the money. Now, they may not be able to withdraw the money uh, quickly enough, but at least there is a there, there was a chance that they could do this. Right. So, so the, if we let the outsiders make decisions on the basis of 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 the information, then panic could uh, could follow suit. But if we let an, a, a regulator come in to say, well, okay. Now, your fundamental is in the middle, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's time for you to cut dividends. Or, uh, Silicon Valley Bank doesn't pay dividends, but many banks do. Right. Um, or, you know, you should start to raise capital quietly, uh, or you should start to deleverage quietly. And so there are a lot of uh, corrective actions that the bank could do to push itself out of marginally good uh, situation to really good. So that way a bank run could be avoided and the society overall could benefit. Let me ask you a question. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, to address the problem you raised that the management could opportunistically exploit the discretion we give to them. Hmm. Uh, I think the solution is to rely on other governance mechanisms other than the market discipline. Now we have regulators, we do have board of directors who uh, are an important part of the the governance mechanism to make sure that the discretion is used appropriately. Now, of course, there, there could be other issues with the the board of directors in particular, and I would say there are probably also issues with regulators as well. Uh, but you know, per, uh, perfection is the enemy of good. Since 1931, Financial Executives International has been the leading advocate for the views of corporate financial management. Its more than 10,000 members hold policy-making positions as chief financial officers, chief accounting officers, controllers and treasurers at companies from every major industry. And FEI enhances its members' professional development through peer networking, career management services, conferences, research, and publications. Join FEI today to network with key influencers, understand emerging issues, advocate for corporate finance, and boost your career opportunities. Both individual and corporate membership options are available. Go to www.financialexecutives.org and click on Become a Member. Or look for the link in this episode's show notes. I just want to take a bigger picture question right now, and that's how did, you know, given that you think, you know, there should be a, a different approach to the disclosures and the approach to disclosures, how did we get to this point? What, you know, um, how has the the reporting infrastructure around banking developed this way, and and um, you know what what were the incentives around that? Yeah, 
You know, that was a, this is a very good uh, question. Um, the, uh, we had another crisis in 1980s, the, uh, the savings and loan mm-hmm. uh, 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 crisis. And in, in some way, I, I haven't got a chance to do a more careful comparison, but it does ring the bell that we are almost repeating the same mistakes hmm. we made 30 years ago. So the 30 years ago, uh, the savings and loan uh, um, thrift banks, they basically um, took in deposits and then um, invested them in long-term uh, mortgages. And so, and then in late 1970s, as a result of various um, uh, economic and political factors, inflation started to take off and the long-term interest rate keeps rising. Um, and then the, now the, for, for, for those uh, savings and loan banks, the liability, is short term. They have right. to raise the interest rate when the inflation or when the interest rate becomes higher to attract the the depositors. Um, while their asset side, they've made they had made all those uh, thirty year, twenty year uh, fixed rate mortgage. And so when the inflate when the, the, the inflation uh, and the interest rate become higher, the value of those long term loan. Um, dropped right and so at that time the regu- the regulators decided to forbear those banks in the early stage mm-hmm. and then they hoped that oh you know they used a similar argument that well if you hold those mortgages um uh, until they mature uh, you are not going to lose much credit you are not going to have much credit loss uh but now those banks realize that well, you know, my real economic capital was very low. Like in Silicon Valley Bank's case, mm-hmm. the the economic capital after you take into account the loss on health maturity was near zero. Right. And that situation, we encounter what we call the moral hazard problem right. uh, in economics. That is, if I gamble, if I take a lot of risk. And and it works out. Uh, I enjoy the, the the upper side, but you now if it, it unfortunately fails, then the loss will be borne uh, by other people. So I only have one one billion dollar capital left in the bank anyway. Um, and so in 1980s, that forbearance led to the what they call a gambling for resurrections. <laughs> uh, those. Uh, banks started to to take on excessive risk, uh, try to get themselves out of that uh, unrealized loss. Mm. And eventually that led to uh, a widespread uh, financial difficulties for the entire industry. And it, it, it took um, uh, FDIC, Federal Deposit uh, Insurance Company, long time to sort out that mess. So as a result of that crisis, in from 1990s, the the, the Congress uh, uh, 
passed that uh, FDIC Improvement Act, right. and the accounting profession also started to to reflect on the failure and push more towards the so-called fair value accounting. Right. Um, now, I personally don't like that notion of fair value accounting uh, because it, it, it makes the conversation very difficult. Like, like uh, I remember I, I saw um, uh, Jimmy Diamond um, talking about fair value accounting in uh, one of the uh, bankers uh, association uh, mm. uh, um, and you, uh, meeting. He, he started the conversation by saying, of course, we are all for fair value accounting. You know, uh, what's the what is the fair value of our, our assets? I want to tell my investors. Uh, but then two sentences later, he started to talk about, oh, you know, the fair value of the pension liability may not be a good idea. Uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, so the fair value of your own liability might not be a good idea. Right. So I, I don't like the the label, but the label has been there for a long time. I, I would just call mark to market accounting. It's a more neutral uh, label. Right. So the the push for for uh, for mark to market accounting ever since uh, early nineteen nineties has led to a lot of um, uh, an expansion of uh, fair value measurement in uh, in in particular in financial um, uh, uh, assets and liabilities. Um, now, but what the biggest change, I think, so first of all, in in, uh, in 1990s, they started to put, uh, they, they started to require more stringent uh, conditions for put your for putting your financial assets or liability into how to maturity. Uh, they say you have to show more positive intent and and ability. And then the big change came in two thousand eight, where uh, the FASB uh, Financial Accounting Standard Board mm. uh, they they passed this rule in two thousand sixteen, but um, it started to be effective in two thousand eighteen that all the essentially all the equity securities have to be treated as trading securities, which mm -hmm. means that uh, the change in the market valuation of those equity securities has to be recorded not only on the balance sheet, but also in the income statement. So it directly uh, impacts the bottom line. Right. Uh, but for whatever reason, they left the um, the debt security unaffected. So Warren Buffett has uh, has been complaining about that uh, accounting change ever mm -hmm. since. Uh, in fact, before two thousand eighteen, the in, in the in, in the famous annual letter to investors, Berkshire Hathaway always put the book value. Um, of, of of the company on the cover page, right? Um, and then after 2018, they only put the market value of Berkshire on the cover page. And then almost in every letter ever since, Warren Buffett would complain that with the with its large portfolio of available for sale securities, the fluctuation in the market value of that portfolio simply swamps the the so-called operating earnings of other business hmm. uh, just in this year's letter he he, he made that com, um, 
complaint again, like the I, I forgot the specific numbers. I think let's let's say for the operating earnings uh, from all those industries, Berkshire um, Hathaway owns the operating earnings fluctuate around you know say say ten billion dollar per quarter, but right. then the market value of that that available for sale security oftentimes could fluctuate in the magnitude of 70 80 billion dollars a quarter uh, so they they did that rule change for the equity uh, which caused problems like uh, 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 Warren Buffett was complaining but then for the banks uh, for many banks the equity holding was very small in the first place um and the, now uh, the and, and another uh, change in this accounting rule is that they changed from the incurred loss model to the um, the current expected uh, credit loss model. Right, right. And that that, that in, was a big deal. Yeah, in essence, that is another fair value measurement. So, in the sense that you you don't look at the incur loss, you try to expect the future uh, credit loss and incorporate them in your accounting numbers. So it's a variant of the market market accounting in the context of loans that don't necessarily have a liquid markets. So uh, now these two changes for banks, uh, the the the. See, uh, the credit, uh, the current expected credit loss model has more bite for banks. Right. While the the equity um, reclassification doesn't have much bite, but the problem is that there is another the 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 more fundamental issue, I think, in the uh, 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 in the savings and loan crisis in 1980s uh, was not addressed. That is how to deal with the interest rate risk. Hmm. Now, in the 1980s, in the savings and loan crisis, some argue that you can view that uh, when the mortgage, when the interest rate increased, the value of the 30-year fixed rate mortgage drops. Now, there it could be uh, an interest rate risk, but it could also be a credit risk mm-hmm. because. Uh, when the interest rate becomes higher, the economy was stagnated. Uh, the chance that the homeowners may fail to pay back the mortgage could also be higher. So sometimes it's difficult to kind of disentangle. And so, uh, so the efforts, in my view, have been devoted more to address the credit risk, uh, and that is the 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 the, uh, the C uh, CECL uh, model. But they, to some extent, I think they overlooked the interest rate risk. Now, the interest rate, the interest rate risk wasn't a problem in the past three decades, ever since the savings and loan crisis until two years ago. And so this time, I think in terms of the development of financial reporting standards, I think apparently we are going to have a closer examination of the uh of, of our accounting for interest rate risk does is is it an issue well let me figure out a way to ask this is it an issue that um the, the banks and bank management are are better at managing 
um, credit risk and credit losses. But it, it seems over a long period of time that they're just not that great at um, managing interest rate risk. Is it is it a disclosure problem or is it just a management of, of the risk uh, problem? Well, that's, a, that's a very good point, Chris. Um, that's, a, that's a really excellent point. Um, it, from the economics of banks, we could argue that you know, traditionally, again, uh, Doug Diamond, uh, who was one of the three Nobel laureates, uh, um, who is a professor at the University of Chicago. Hmm. Uh, Doug Diamond worked on his dissertation at Yale on this issue, and the, he argued that you know, banks have this, what is the essence, what is the competitive advantage of a bank? Now, I think uh, it's, essentially it's your way to say that, well, it seems that the competitive advantage of the of a bank is to manage credit risk than to manage the interest rate risk. Right. Uh, that's also uh, Doug's view. Uh, so it's true that the banks could do more to, uh, uh, given that their business model is to make loans, then they they do have competitive advantage to manage the credit risk. They could they have expertise and they have resources. Right screen borrowers, they could continuously monitor the borrowers. Um, and now, and that's why ideally, we wanted the banks to make loans with floating rates. Right. In other words, you only charge your borrowers a spread over, uh, uh, over, over say, you know, a five year uh, yield uh, of the treasury. Um, and now, but the problem is that if the bank is, uh, and then of course you're right that banks are not experts in managing interest rate risk, which is you know, controlled by many factors that are not controlled by the bank. Right. Uh, and so, so, so then, then the question is that, well, if the management is not, good at managing interest rate risk, do we want to force them to be responsible for the interest rate risk? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the answer, I think, is that, well, um, it's true that the banks, I, I think my answer is that, yes, they should be responsible. Why? Well, even though they do not have expertise in managing interest rate risk, they do have the ability to choose whether to take or not to take the interest rate risk. Right. Yeah. So in other words, if a, if a bank say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take the money, go to the casino and play out the Russian roulette. I don't have expertise. Well, but you choose to go there. So right. 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 For that risk as well. And so in the context of Silicon Valley banks, when the, the, enormous amount of uh, deposits rushed into the door in 2000, uh, 2021. Now, the bank had a choice. The bank could have, the bank could have put the money in um, debt securities with shorter duration. Right. 
So the average duration uh, of the health maturity portfolio was 6.2 years. And so basically they put most, uh, and, and, and that duration uh, increased from, uh, I think around below four to 6.2 uh, uh, from 2021 to 2022. So which means that most money, I think more than nine, uh, 90% of the health maturity securities, they were uh, put into securities with maturity longer than 10 years. They have right. this disclosure in their annual report. Now, that is your choice. Uh, the management was reaching for higher yield. Right. Um, now, so if they are not experts in managing that risk, then they shouldn't have gone there. So in that sense, I would say um, we we still should require them to be responsible for the fluctuation in the interest rate. I wanted to, I don't want to take too much of your time and um, I know we're going deep on this and this is sort of a, sort of final <laughs> wrap up question. Um, you know, given our audience and thinking about disclosures and like I said, a good mem- number of our members are in the financial service industry and banking. What should they be thinking about now in terms of like they see, uh, you know, what's going on? There's a bank run. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what should they be thinking about in terms of communication and disclosures that you've that you've gleaned from your research? Um, that's a very good question. That's a, that's going to be a truly billion dollar, trillion dollar <laughs> question. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, from my financial reporting ex, uh, perspective uh, uh, or from the banking regulation perspective, I think at least two things need to be done. Uh, one is that the accounting for health maturity should be reconsidered. Hmm. I think it's a myth that it, that as long as the principle is safe, then you are not losing value. Hmm. No, that's that goes against the 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 first finance one hundred one that there is a, something called not only risk premium but also time value right. of money. Yeah. So when you are underwater because of the higher interest rate, now your cost of funding will be higher. So for, for Silicon Valley Bank, if the, uh, for the bank with that $15 billion lost handover, the, the future profitability of the bank would suffer until you collect all the principles in 10 years. Right. So, so the economic capital was already eroded, and, and we, uh, the accounting rules and the regulations need to take into account that and correct them. Um, that's number uh, one. Now, number two is probably a more broad notion of how regulators operate. Uh, it's related to the rule-based versus principle-based right. uh, regulation. I also have done some research about, and it's also related to some of the 
you might say, behavioral economics perspectives. Um, I've been a, a, a big fan of um, the author, uh, Nassan Taleb, you know, who wrote mm -hmm. that Black Swan book in 2007. I'm actually teaching a class called Managing Black Swans oh, well. uh, at Hong Kong U. And I try to in, uh, in incorporate some of the, his insights in this context. For example, as you mentioned, and I also explained, the reform in the past three decades seemed to focus more on credit loss. And that probably was, that, that focus was further uh, enhanced uh, as a result of the, the, the 2008 financial crisis, because right. there the credit loss was the main concern. Right. Now, the problem that when we focus on a particular problem, we that might come at the expense of ignoring other problems. And I think this is really a case to the point. I look at the regulatory filings of uh, Silicon Valley Bank in the past few quarters and all the investor presentations they made, including the one they made on March 8th, they Look at the, um, the their main focus on risk was credit loss, and right. given the small loan portfolio, um, the 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 credit loss of the company was minimal, and they never, at least as far as I have read, for all the the annual report and the 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 four earnings release for the past four quarters, they never discussed that $15 billion health maturity loss. They, mm -hmm. they disclose it on the balance sheet. In the bracket, they say, oh, uh, fair value is um, uh, is is uh, $76 billion. And then on the balance sheet, the, the, the book value is uh, $93 or $91 billion. So you, then in one of the note, uh, in the disclosure of their investment security, they have this line called unrealized gain hmm. or loss of $15 billion. And then those two numbers are there in a report of about 200 pages. It's only th th that loss only showed up twice and it's never mentioned uh, in any discussion. Now, I don't know whether the management truly believed that as long as the loss was not recognized by the accounting standards or regulation, it doesn't count. Right. Or it probably understood that, and you know, given that they're not required by the regulation to discuss it, they, they of course choose to turn a blind eye on this. So I think for the regulation in general, we should give regulators more principle-based power. Mm -hmm. And probably more importantly, we should train our regulators and our market participants to be more open-minded, to look at the blind spots. Uh, so that relates to another issue at this moment that, for example, to what extent we should protect the uninsured um, depositors. Right. Right. Uh, the majority of that 170 plus billion dollar deposits, I think, uh, probably more than 90% uh, are uninsured. Yeah, it's a massive amount. Yeah, and we also have the federal um, um, uh, uh, home loan uh, company lended more than uh, $10 billion. 
how you know how should the FHLC uh, uh, be treated? And we have those um, 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 preferred shares as well, which has has this feature of debt security as well. So it's related with, to this issue that well, you know, given that the market participants or especially those uninsured depositors, you know, to what extent we should expect them to be more mindful and to what extent they should be responsible for their negligence. Uh, and that's, that's a very tough question. Yeah. And it's not only about Silicon Valley Bank, but it also has more, probably more importantly implications for other banks. Right. I expect that if we don't see anything specific from FDIC to protect those uninsured uh, depositors, then this coming Monday going to be nasty. You, know, you can imagine that those uh, uninsured depositors in other small banks are going to be really nervous. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that, well, you know, given uh, now, so I noticed uh, another thing that I think is very interesting. Uh, so first of all, the loss in the health maturity was built up quarter by quarter. I think the first quarter of 2022, they they recognized $7 billion loss. So half of that $15 billion. Uh, and then you look at the, the, the stock price and the price for the preferred shares of Silicon Valley Bank. Both of them started to drop. Right. And, and in particular, the preferred shares, now those... Uh, the preferred shares accounted for about 3.5 billion, um, about 20%, a little bit more than 20% of its equity capital. Those investors are smart or were right. smart. Um, they already realized what's going on. So that's why I, I say I disagree that there was no, there wasn't much warning in advance. But the problem is that, well, should the uninsured depositors right. have noticed that and and took action accordingly and if they didn't to what extent they should bear the consequences and more importantly where were the regulators yeah, yeah. when the stock price of the bank dropped more than two-thirds even the preferred shares i think dropped from 25 dollar all the way to 15 dollar um 40 percent drop so why are those regulators not doing anything. Now, they might be bound by the regulations. Now, there are certain rules that, oh, you know, my my cap, my tier one capital ratio is 15%. How dare you to, to, to right. tell me what to do? <laughs> so, I, so that's why I think the second lesson would be that we need to re-examine the regulation. And in particular, I think we should give more uh, discretionary power, more principle-based uh, uh, regulations so that the regulators will not fall into the narrow narrative on certain risk at the expense of ignoring other risks.